Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. On today's episode, I've got the man that signed Coldplay to their first ever record deal. Chatting tracks. Let's talk music. Thanks, Robbie, and welcome to Chatting Tracks. Let's talk music. Let's talk music indeed. I've got a fantastic episode for you today. I've got label boss and author Simon Williams. Is he a label boss or more just a cool dude that runs a record label? I think it's that one. He's such a cool guy. He wrote a book called Pandemonium, How Not to Run a Record Label. And in this book, he covers his early years, but going to gigs and loving music, becoming a journalist, his time at XFM as a DJ, and also starting the most independent record label, hands down in the country, which is fantastic, Fierce Panda. Now, to list Fierce Panda's artists would take all day, but I'll give you a few. Keen, Coldplay and Ash. It's a brilliant label. They've, they've got amazing punk ethos and it still works to this day. They're still going. They formed in the 90s and they're still going to this day. There's going to be a link in the description to the website so you can find it. You can see who they've signed and what they're doing and just buy the records on there because it's an amazing, amazing label. So full disclosure, in Simon's book, he did make a suicide attempt. And we talk about suicide attempts and self-harm in this book. If you know anybody that's going through the same sort of problems or you feel could be on that journey, please let them hear this interview or send Simon's book to them and let them read it because it will show you there's light at the end of the tunnel. And it's just an amazing book about recovery and music. It's incredible. I got the audio book of it and Simon narrates it and to hear him saying it in his own words literally hits you harder than when you read it on the page. But if someone needs this book, please pass it on. It could save someone's life. It's incredible. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out Fierce Panda's website and I'll see you in the next one. Ta-da! Your book's fantastic and we'll get to it in a minute and it covers a lot of stuff. We're going to try and get as much in as we can. But um, So your house growing up, was it a musical house? Were your parents into music? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. My, I, it was only my mum and um, yeah, she, she loved music and uh, we had a piano, a guitar, a flute, an oboe, and I think it was just them. Um, she was desperate for me to sort of, you know, follow her t- talented path. I think she just went wrong by getting me to try and try and learn the flute. Which <laughs> as a as a thirteen year old kid in nineteen seventy seven wasn't a good thing. I didn't even like Jethro Tull or James Galway, <laughs> and you know those were the popular artists at the time. So well, yeah, that kind of just that just put me off for life, and I just worked out then that you know my uh, my mine would be a life in the musical shadows. <laughs> but not so the, it, not these shadows, obviously. That's a... <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember you in that band. Were you more of an, a music appreciator at a younger age than a musician? Absolutely, yeah, were... yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, she, you know, Bridge Trouble Trouble Water was was to, was a massive hit when I was a kid. I just remember the one thing I didn't understand was the concept of her record. I think you know she had a massive record collection, and then I remember one day on my little transistor radio hearing Bridge Over Trouble Water, and I thought, I told it they're playing one of your records. And I just completely bewildered. I had no idea that these people had like number one albums in America or anything like that with America, funny enough. So yeah, that was a bit of an education. But then I think that, you know, that's, that's normally the way, isn't it? I remember seeing, um, first and more do, um, an AIM conference and obviously the whole AIM ethos is to be India than now. And they're asking him, you know, what labels were your first, you know, record purchases on? And there was shock and horror in the room when he went, well, it's kind of, you know, Warners and Capital. The fact that those records were actually by Talking Heads and Ramones had nothing to do with it. You know, they were, everyone's just shocked at the mention of a major label. But you know, when he was when he was fourteen, fifteen years old, he wasn't he wasn't going down a rough trade in Brooklyn, was he? He was going there, going down the Walmart to get his musical fixes, as as we all did. You know, my first my first purchase was Jilted John by Jilted John from uh, Walthamstow High Street, Woolworths. 
Fantastic. I remember the first time I got Bridge Over Trouble Waters with the like the only living boy in New York hearing the harmonies on that. Yeah. And as as a young boy, I think I was about 11, 12 when I first heard it, I couldn't understand what I was listening to, yeah. if that makes any sense. Because it was so beautiful and so well put together. I was like, this is alien. Yeah. And it's, it's it's wonderful. And I love it, even at a young age, it can it can just sort of burn on you that quickly. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and I, I, years and years later, you know, one of the, one of the, 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 the terrible curses of credibility is the fact that you can't, you can't really blow your own trumpet. So the amount of times you hear stories from, you know, Nirvana or Radiohead or whatever, just going, yeah, they had no idea that Smells Like Teen Spirit was going to be a hit or, you know, how much they hated Creep, you know, all these stories. And then they interviewed, um, they interviewed Paul Simon about the, um, you know, the studio art of uh, Bridge Over Trouble Water. And he basically just kind of, you know, just did an acoustic guitar. And uh, he said, yeah, straight away, I knew this was going to be one of the greatest songs of all time. And I thought, you know, thank Christ for that. Sometimes you've just got to go, you know, just, just brilliant. <laughs> that's, that's my guy right there. Absolutely. Guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then of course, Art, Art Garfungal gets all the credit because he, <laughs> he sings the most amazing vocal take of all time, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> so would that sort of album be one of the defining albums of you sort of as a child, like tuning into music and going, oh, I need to find out what more of this stuff is? Um, I guess so. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I was so young. But it was so. I just remember, you know, I saw I saw a folk act the other day in Newcastle, and it took me straight back to being a kid when my mum became she she became a flautist in a in a Morris dancing band combo, and <laughs> and and started just playing Wishbone Ash and Fairport Convention and Steel Eye Bloody Span, and uh, and it it just took me back to this to this horror show. So it wasn't. By no stress, and she and she absolutely loved her classical music as well. But those things just didn't interest me whatsoever. It was just kind of that Simon and Garfunkel thing, you know. Whether it be the melodies or, as you as you say, just the harmonies were just absolutely incredible, weren't they? Yeah. And then um, you know, slightly too young for slightly too young for glam. Although you know, again, massive appreciation of all the Bowie singles. And then uh, and then my first true love was ELO. Wow! Basically, Rockaria was the first yeah. single that really impacted. And I got out of the blue one Christmas and then went back. And my, so that was my first record. And then my second one was a New World record. I went back and got the previous album. And uh, in fact, I had little there uh, when I got home from London last night. It was about half past one. And I had a little, uh, little ELO disco in the back garden. <laughs> I never would have put ELO as one of those records for you. No, th- well, it's, it's just a weird thing. I, I'm sure I shouldn't be, you know, like first and more. I shouldn't say these things. Just to go, you know. <laughs> My first album was the Anti Nowhere League on, you know, Snot Green Vinyl or something. But, but I just find it's, um, you know, the fact that their music's just as, you know, I mean, they were never cool at the time. They're much cooler now. Yeah. You know, but <laughs> like, they were, like you know, but in, yeah, in, in 1977, this wasn't, this wasn't the height of coolness, but I, I didn't, I didn't really care, you know. And then I went, <laughs> I basically, I kind of went from ELO to the jam to the Anti Nowhere League to the Farmers Boys to New Order. That was basically right. it, and then, and then C eighty six, and then I joined the enemy, and then obviously you know all, I lost all taste for music completely because I was just it was just a, you know an absolute absolute beast of a feast, with, uh, <laughs> you know just trying to keep up with even back then just trying to keep up with new acts and new releases. So like you said, you're you're into the jam and you're you're going to a lot of gigs and you started to write a fanzine at this time. Is that mm-hmm. right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Again. Uh, Another idea that wasn't my own. I just saw um, I saw Everett True uh, when he was the legend. We were at the um, he was selling he was selling this magazine 
from a little farmer's farmer's wife's basket at the bar of the um, House of Clarendon and uh, House Martins and his latest flame were both like and um, and I just remember looking at that going that looks exciting so I did some research and then found out that you know down rough trade way you had, had a whole ton of amazing fanzines and it was a proper nationwide scene which fed into the whole C86 ethos and then by the time I joined the NME in uh, 88 half the staff had come through their own fanzines whether it's like you know Steve Mack or James Brown or Stephen Wells or myself, Stuart McConey, people like that, we'd all we'd all put in the hard graft. And it is hard graft, isn't it? From school magazines to fanzines. It's it's a Yeah. We're, we're very strange beasts, aren't we? Why, <laughs> why aren't we just outside having fun? <laughs> we just like being indoors. I think it is, um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but they'll be like being outdoors as well, because you've got to go to gigs to, you know, actually to, to review the bands, to interview the bands and then to sell the fanzine back to the bands. <laughs> You know. Only indoor gigs. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I've never, yeah, I've never tried to sell a fanzine at a festival. Oh, that'd be sad, wouldn't it? You'd just be walking around two hours later with people, but just burning them. <laughs> Keep the mozzies away. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> For people that don't know, can you explain the importance of uh, NMEC 86 and what it is and why it influenced so many people? Well, it's, it's a weird one because I kind of. It was just, I'd be, I mean, certainly on a personal level, for me, I kind of, for the early 80s, I mean, again, we were just sport for choice. You had Sounds, you had Record Mirror, um, Smash Hits was brilliant at the time, Melody Maker was really cool, and I found Enemy a little bit, a little bit a dour, I think is the word, isn't it? They, they certainly next to the sort of the colour splash of, you know, the, the, the eye-popping covers of, of Smash Hits, and the writing was fairly impenetrable. But C86, I don't know, they just kind of found a generation of bands. I mean, what's the stat out of the out of the 22 bands on there? 16 of them released their first records in 1986, which is just mm. astonishing stat. And I actually bumped into Adrian Thrills recently, one of the compilers, and I said, why weren't Hurrah on there? Because they were great in 86. And he said, nah, nah, they'd have been more C83. And I thought, they, you know, they, 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 there was a real science to it. And again, you know, the whole fanzine scene had helped all these bands. You had their complete support network. You had, I mean, most of the bands I saw were playing sort of student unions, you know, whether it be Yulu or Queen Mary Union. And you had that great college scene where, you know, there was always going to be, you know, one guy there with a long overcoat and Ian McCulloch <laughs> hair. And you knew he was the Ents guy who would be putting on all these bands because he'd be, should be reading the enemy all the time. And I just found it, you know, culturally, you know, probably a bit namby-pamby-ish, but that meant that the bands were pretty much nice people. But, you know, I was reading the um, What Happens to the C86 Kids book recently by Nights Tassel. You know, I don't think Bobby Gillespie comes out of it too well, but generally, <laughs> you know, the bass player from the Soup Dragons and the drummer from McCarthy, it tends to be quite nice chaps. <laughs> and, and, it, and it fed through to to my time at the NME, obviously. So you know, you know, going to interview or review the Wolfhounds, McCarthy, Close Lobsters, all those bands, it was kind of a really profound kind of time. I interviewed um, Vicky Perks from Fuzzbox. She's yeah. on the cassette, and she's very lovely as well. Yeah, it's, yeah. And uh, she uh, herself said it was it was just a thing for the band. So if people don't know it was a cassette tape that came out. Yeah. And it just influenced everybody, and it, it was—it's just an amazing. Cassette. I think they sell for quite ridiculous amounts of money now. Yeah, as well, probably. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the, the fascinating one is just that 
the amount of bands who either just said no to being on it, like the Jimmy Brides, because <laughs> they thought they'd get typecast. And uh, and the other bands who just kind of, you know, they were, they, they got like 100 quid each, didn't they, to do demos. Yeah, and it, some yeah. some of them just like pocketed the money and just gave in new demos. And then basically every band got the got the, got the cassette through because they thought it was going to be some stupid mail order bollocks. And then they all heard... <laughs> They all heard Primal Scream and the Bodines and went, oh, bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> so you were, you were selling your, your fanzine at concerts, is that right? And then someone approached yeah. you about joining NME. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, not really, no. I was just doing my usual spiel. It was Popular Itself, Yulu, start of 88. And I was just going around, you know, I just did my usual thing and went up to a couple of girls just outside the, uh, the geek room at Yulu and just said, you know, would you like to buy a fanzine? And one of them kind of looked at looked at the magazine cover and just said, I've been looking for you. And it turned out to be Helen Mead from the NME because I've wow. just kind of, you know, been, I don't know, things things you don't know what to do. You just kind of, I'll send a review to the NME and I'll write it in pencil. Why would I do that? <laughs> what, what do you mean double spacing? What, I don't understand what you're talking about. And uh, yeah, and that was it. You know, I went, in, I went in for a little meeting with her and then she started, you know, started doing live reviews, the old, doing the old circuit. So yeah, incredibly Amazing. fortuitous, really. You know, of all the, of all the of all the of all the women in all the world, <laughs> in all the geeks. I mean, that's it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounded like an amazing job for a young guy. It must have been really draining and energetic. Could you describe an average week how it would go for you? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't entirely mad because back then, normally, geeks the only good geeks that really happened to sort of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You know, the whole idea of there being decent indie clubs playing on decent indie bands over the weekend was just absolute nonsense. And and that, that carried on for years and years and years, even as a promoter at venues like the Dublin Castle. You never asked for a Friday because that was there. It's coaches from Colchester on the Friday that basically kept them going. You know, we'd always ask for a Tuesday or a Wednesday. So And then, you know, and it was pretty much industry-led. So, I mean, most of the time was certainly at the peak of the NME, you'd be doing three nights on the trot and Friday you might go out and be normal with friends. And then Saturdays was just literally lock the door and watch mass the day. Just, just, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't possibly do it. Conf- confused, it confused sort of girlfriends at the time. Cause it's all right, let's, let's go out. And it's like, I can't, I can't, I can't face, I can't face any more conversations, especially because people are ask me about music. So that, <laughs> that was my, that was my sanity. Whereas now it's a bit more, it's a bit more fluid. And along the way, yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, I, you know, one week you're in Sweden with Radiohead, the next week you're in Australia with Garbage, then you're in Japan with the Blue Tones, then you're in Derby with the Wish Plants, then you're in Preston with Ned Stomach Dustbin. You know, it was um, it's, it, it was weird. It's very weird. Been doing, I've been like basically living that this week. You know, right. on on Sunday I started off. I was in Newcastle at the Generator conference, um, and I went there from Leeds to join the Ash in-store tour. And then, um, and then they did Jumbo Records at lunchtime, and then they did the Cavern Club in the evening. So I managed to get a bonus trip to Manchester as well because the trains from Leeds to Liverpool were cancelled, obviously, because <laughs> it was Sunday afternoon. So yeah, so they ended up going to Manchester, and then obviously you have to go at a walk from the Victoria Station to Piccadilly because it's a completely different train line. That's right, yeah. And then finally made it to the Cavern Club, and then uh, and then I went and then I got went home to Suffolk on the Monday, and then Tuesday went out to Bristol. And then Bristol to London, and then yeah, etc. And it's taken me back to that kind of that time of just the absolute madness. You'd, you'd, you'd never know where you certainly you might know where you're going, but you didn't actually know where you were once you were there, you know, <laughs> or what day it was, or anything like that. 
you know thank I god mean, the zoom calls i've been able to focus on that i know you know because of that it's in the diary you know <laughs> i know what time it is i know what day it is is it one of those things where like a while back i had a full-time job i was at university on my days off and i was djing in the evenings yeah and then when you look at photos from that period you're just like a stick with a pair of eyes on it yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i mean there was yeah at the at its peak in 94 95 i was running I was editing the live section of the enemy and editing the on section of the enemy. So just dealing with new bands and I was promoting gigs at Club Spangle at the Dublin Castle and I was DJing on XFM and there was something else I can't even remember. But it was all interconnected, you know, and, and, and you know, oh, well, I was running Fierce Panda Records, that's it, yeah. <laughs> apart from that, apart from that, there was nothing else going on in 1994, but... But yeah, I mean, you're you're young and you're excitable, and it and it all makes sense, you know. And basically, you know, you're. I didn't do any of these things on my own. You know, there was a great team of writers at the NME. It was my dear friends Chris Myhill and Dave Laurie who I did promoted the gigs with. XFM, obviously, you had Janice Long, Gary Crowley, Marianne Hobbs, fantastic team of DJs. You know, Fierce Panda was me and Ian Damaged Goods. You know, there was always always a grown up involved. And it was just, you know, we just found a way that people, luckily, people wanted to, well, not surprisingly, people wanted to be in the NME, and they quite liked being played on XFM, but but they actually, because of that, it meant that they were quite happy to come and play our gigs and actually release records with us. That's fantastic. I mean, you saw hundreds of bands over the years what was it what would it be that would make a band stand out to you like would it be the the way they interact with the crowd would it be the songwriting would it be just be the crowd they would bring would it, would it be an easy fix like that yeah i mean there's you know there's there's so many different elements to it isn't it i mean i mean obviously the key one is is you know coldplay at the um when i first saw them at the um at the falcon in camden you know i mean they they did look, they looked absolutely bloody awful they really really <laughs> did you know, he had his early mop top hair and his tank tops and his just and his terrible jokes and his his tiny acoustic guitar and they kind of ripped off Jeff Buckley and ripped off Radiohead and but they were absolutely compelling and and those jokes were actually they stood out ironic enough because of their naffness. We just had, you know, five years of everyone just trying to be, you know, fucking Liam Gallagher. <laughs> and God bless him, but he's not he's not a comedian, is he? <laughs> and um, and it was just like a bolt from the blue. And I know, you know, Stephen May famously says that 1999 was the worst year for music ever. And on that top level, I guess, you know, the NME was, had resorted to putting on, you know, Gay Dad and Ultrasound and Campag Velocet. Two out of three bands that are on Fierce Panda, inevitably. But, you know, where we were down the Bull and Gate or down the, down the Falcon, you know, that's where that year... And the end of '98 as well. That's the first time we saw Elbow, Keen, Coldplay, Dubs, all those kind of bands coming through. And um, and it's kind of you know Dubs. I remember what worked for them was it was phenomenally loud. They had a brilliant film show because they knew they looked terrible because <laughs> they'd already had their dance career in Sub Sub. So they oh. said, okay, we're going to go down to London. We all looked so grisly and old. So they came up with a brilliant, brilliant film show. And they had a guest list featuring someone from Coronation Street, someone from the Pet Shop Boys, and someone from New Order, which we presumed was just a piss take until there were all, all those people standing at the bar. There was there was Neil Tennant with Barney with, uh, with Coronation Street Boy. That was good. Elbow, I thought, straight off the bat, absolutely brilliant. I just saw that, that, that thing with that mix of talk, talk, 
with a bit of a prefab sprout with a bit of the blue nile i was absolutely smitten by that so you know i mean in a way those bands were kind of they were, even those bands were cooler than cooler than smarter than coldplay but i thought the key thing is the key thing is always the gig but the key thing to remember is that that's not the key thing for most people most people's yeah. experience is not the falcon most most <laughs> times they you know they they, they, they just did six nights at Wembley Stadium. There would have been a lot of people there who had never seen them play live before. It's radio. That was the yeah. key thing. You know, Steve Ramat was there. We put a single out. It gets on the radio. And then all of a sudden, all those record companies that have turned down the band because they've been standing there staring at his, you know, listening to his jokes and watching his awful hairstyle, they're all just going, well, this, this is different because I'm just hearing it as a song. Mm. And, it's, and it's the mistake they, they just constantly made around that time. You know, they did the same with Keane. You know, they King King did loads and loads and loads of sold out gigs, but no one would sign them until yeah. they got on the radio, and then they got on the A list at Radio One, even on Fierce Pand, and it and it changed their career. Yeah, it's the twenty two, isn't it? You got yeah. to get the got to go on the air to get signed. You can't get signed to get on the air. All that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I used yeah. to play in bands in the nineties, and we had the same sort of thing, just trying to get gigs. You couldn't get gigs unless you had a manager. Yeah, you couldn't get a manager because you didn't have the gigs. Yeah, I know. <laughs> just, I know. They know. Yeah, I, just, I mean, I kind of, I tend, I tended to sort of avoid all that. There was never an issue for us at all. If it, if a demo turned up and we liked it, you know, we didn't, we never asked, do you have a manager? Uh, in fact, a lot of times they ended up with a manager because they were on Fierce Panda. Right. Because they thought, aye, aye, this has got momentum behind it. And, you know, let's see if we can go and get ourselves a record deal. Yeah. Talking of Fierce Panda, can you just give us a rough overview of how you formed it? Because it's quite accidental by the sounds of it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like with everything else. Yeah, yeah. We were just it was just three of us in the pub. We'd invented a scene called New Wave of New Wave, and um, and we thought it just deserved its own tribute release. And it was essentially smashing these animal men wearing with all their Adidas chic. It was me, Paul Moody, and John Harris in the Blue Post pub, and that's why we came up with Fierce Panda because we thought we're only ever going to do like one release, so we can call it something as stupid as you know as we like. And I think John John later said it was like. New Wave and New Wave was like Britpop without the tunes. And it certainly it certainly was the developing ground, these bands. It was it was all amphetamines and Adidas. Um and then and then within, you know, within a year, you know, you couldn't move in Camden Town for people on drugs and wearing gazelles and and then out of that you've got all your because the cause the Britpop thing's actually bollocks, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the yeah. whole concept, you know, the whole concept that nineteen ninety five was year zero. I mean pulp Blur, Sway, all formed in the bloody 80s. They'd all been written about in the enemy for seven years. So it was just nonsense. I, I absolutely, even though I was working at the enemy at the time, so I was ostensibly, you know, validating it. I hated that front cover that, you know, when it was number one and number, they, they were fighting to get to the top of the charts. So I thought, this, yeah. is, this is a tragedy. And then obviously, you know, and then we saw the fallout, which is everyone else just trying to rip those bands off for the next four years and the majors falling for it. Yeah, you know the amount yeah, of bands who got million dollar, million pound deals out of that just for just for being a you know a blur tribute band it was a disgrace, and that's so, why and that's why they really struggled with, you know they basically abandoned guitars and that's why, you know, I mean Dove's Dove's did it through started off with Rob Gretton so we wanted to do a Dove single but they said oh, we've already committed you know our manager's going to do it you know part of the factory stable, and then they signed to Heavenly but so there's 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 a fairly easy ride but certainly. Certainly, Elbow, Coldplay, Keen, they, and um, Snow Patrol as well. They found it incredibly difficult to get record deals. You know, really, yeah. really, really tough. You know, Snow Patrol was kind of was virtually all over for them. And, you know, so interestingly, reading your book again, like like I was saying, I played in a band in the nineties, 
And we were trying to get noticed by labels like yourself and whoever. And we always thought the scene was in Manchester. We thought mm. that's the place to go. Right. So we were desperately always trying to find... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, owner and user of Mint Mobile. And I am recording this message on my phone. I'm literally on my Mint phone. Why? Because fancy recording studios cost money. And if we spent money on things like that, we couldn't offer you screaming deals. Like if you sign up now for three months, you get three months free on every one of your plans, even unlimited. Visit mintmobile.com slash switch. Limited time, new customer offer. Activate within 45 days. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. Unlimited customers using more than 40 gigabytes per month will experience lower speeds. Video streams at 480p. See mintmobile.com for details. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Trying to get gigs in Manchester. We're all from Essex. We're only down the road. We're about oh, in I'm Essex. From, I'm from Grays in Essex. Right, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, the, key, that's the key to it. Essex is the easiest one because obviously... If you just say you you live within you know thirty five minutes drive of Colchester, then you've got Steve Lamac on side because he's <laughs> a Harlow boy. I was from I was from Walthamstow on the borders of Essex. Yeah. You've got John Peel over there in Peel Acres, which is just over the fields from my office. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. But I like that. I like the idea of you know the musical nomads, you know, <laughs> kind of fine. And and for you know certainly for the early nineties, you're absolutely right. You know, it was. You know, everyone was doing the same thing when they, you know, I think, I think the Dylans was probably the start of the downside, you know, <laughs> and, and, and the, the high were probably a little bit silly as well, but they did have some really, really good songs. And I suppose they were allowed to sound a bit like the Star Rosa because they had the original guitarist, didn't they? <laughs> so, yeah. So, it's just for us, for us, yeah. like, all the music scene at that time seemed to be Manchester based. Yeah, so yeah. we're like, we're never going to get signed in London. What's yeah. the point? So yeah. little, anyway. Anyway, so you wrote, it's the hardest thing for London bands to get signed. It's really weird because I guess it's almost like, it's almost like an open goal for A&R and they, they always get very confused by it. Whereas they all, you know, the amount of bands, I remember back, um, I saw the Snuts play a couple of years ago at the um their first London show and I was with the A and R man for Parlophone and uh and I just thought, I don't know, this is I'm not really a fan of this. And he he said at the end, What did what did you think of it? And I said, Well, I don't suppose you um, did you sign them like at a sold out gig in in front of loads loads of really, really drunk mates at King Tut's Wawa Hut in Glasgow and he went, Yeah, that's exactly how we did it And I was thinking, Yeah, no fucking surprise, you know. They 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 fall for it every time, you know. Twisted wheel in Manchester, you know. Just one, you know, 150 people there, all their mates just completely smashed, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, and 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 the deal was done, you know. Yeah. And then they get it down to London, and just you know, no one turned up. And go, <laughs> That's it. Why do we sign some London bands? This is really weird. But it's interesting now. They set up um, EMI North, haven't they? Oh, have they? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they've they've gone straight in with the you know the really cool labels up there, Clue and Come Play with Me up in Leeds. And um, and they've literally set up EMI North, you know. And the idea is that you know. And then I was on a panel with Scott, who's heading it up, and, and that was in that was the generator in Newcastle. So they're trying to spread the word, and they're also trying to um, trying to you know forge new friendships with Manchester because apparently Andy Burnham was incredibly pissed off that EMI <laughs> North didn't move to uh, Salford. <laughs> he was very angry. Oh, so I'm going to set up fierce panda penines. <laughs> Although, judging by my experience of not being able to get from Leeds to Liverpool the other day, it's kind of wasn't a good start. <laughs> oh, North Pole Panda, I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so you did 11 years at Enemy, is that right? And then yeah, was it a natural yeah. time to leave? or was it yeah, sort yeah, of the... yeah, I stayed there. I stayed there two years, two years too long, I reckon. But, I, you know, I was obviously by this point, having been trying to run the music industry for about four years, I was getting a bit tired. And then, um, and then, and then the label just started taking off. So it was, yeah, it was really nice. But I should have, you know, from a personal, professional, from a personal level, I should have left two years earlier. But from a professional level, I think when when Q Magazine shut down last year, I did think, you know, I did feel a bit wistful and think, I'm glad I did have those two extra years. And in the last year I was there, I still did like fifty live reviews. You know, I kind of I kind of went back to what I was good at. And um, and by then, you know, I mean, the trips were lovely, but, you know, you're getting up. I was on the train from um, going up to Walthamstow to the office, the Panda office. And they're phoning up saying, you know, do you want to go to Florida to interview Tricky? And you're kind of at that point where, yeah, I'll do it. But <laughs> it's not the blue tones in Japan, is it? <laughs> you know, it's a weird thing. It's quite quite a weird thing to get blase about. And I'm not, I'm not proud of it, but it's just, um, it was the nature of the beast by that point I mean the, the basic problem I've got is I just really really like small gigs I'm yeah. not I'm not I'm not interested in the showbiz I'm not interested in the departure lounges it's kind of I just really really you know my favourite new venue is Dreambags Jaguar Shoes in Shoreditch and it's like 80 cap venue there's no stage no mixing desk but there's still yeah. just a brilliant sound guy doing it all with a all doing all on an iPad you know it's a sister venue to the Victoria in Dalston and it's just it's just that, that's my that's my paradise it's the same. I was I was in London with my my missus a little while ago, and we were walking down some side alley, and we went over a grate, and it had that smell, you know, that beer bags, yeah, 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 <laughs> cheese and onion crisps. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, oh, oh. like I stood yeah. there for like, she said, what are you doing? I said, oh, just breathe that in. She's, going, <laughs> she's like, what are you talking about? I said, trust me, this is the smell. You need this yeah, smell yeah, in your yeah. life. You know, that would be. I'd hang that in my car if it was. A thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah, yeah. You need those; they're brilliant. Um, so, like you mentioned earlier, you signed Coldplay and you released a single. Was it Brother and Sister? You released Brothers, Brothers and Sisters EP, yeah. Like they signed eventually to Parlophone, but they they sort of broke away in a really nice way, in a degree. That was that was a yeah. really nice thing in the book. I mean, they, they were absolute sweethearts. They were lovely to deal with. We had six months with them, and and in the end, as I say, there wasn't, you know, everyone turned up to see them at the second Bull and Gate gig. You know, the entire music industry was there, but people were still a bit, you know. I think by that point. The band decided it was either going to be Fierce Panda or Parlophone. Mm. And we had backing from Mushroom at the time. So we had the money and we had the team. And in the end, they went for Parlophone. And to be honest, in 1999, you know, I'd have, I'd have signed to Parlophone. They were absolutely <laughs> brilliant. They were with a Supergrass, Manson, Radiohead, you know, yeah. plus access to all the Beatles, Queen, Cliff Richard records. I don't know. I mean, we can go on and on. Um, so, yeah, so Parlophone were fine, Coldplay were fine, Mushroom were fine because they signed Muse instead. And then we were kind of scuppered. But we weren't even scuppered because, you know, I got we, we got another deal with Ireland Records and the guys there, the main men, Nick Atfield and Paul Adam, lovely Paul Adam, very nice man. They took me to a pub and they said, um, right, what we want you to do is just find the new Coldplay. So we had a big old laugh and said, talked no more about it for six months. And then I walked in with Keen going, you know, the conversation we had about the new good, there's a, and then went through another awful thing where even though my job's to bring them the new Coldplay, they decided they didn't like the new Coldplay, even though I got this new Cold, this new Coldplay onto the Radio 1A list and got them selling out the ICA to 350 people and doing all those things. And then, uh, and in the end, they kind of did a bit of a weird U-turn and managed to sign the band without my involvement. 
which was fine. You know, I kind of I kind of moaned about it to various music industry friends, and then they just came out with even worse stories about the way they'd been absolutely fucked over by managers or <laughs> or agents or something like that. Every single every single decent human being involved in the music industry has been absolutely fucked over. Yeah, and it's always the sociopaths who run it who, who are doing the fucking over. They're absolutely there's some horrible horrible people involved. But the end result is last night. Um, when we, when I mean, when we did the deal with Mushroom back in 1999, um, they had Muse, Garbage, and Ash, hmm. and so there we were last night celebrating the Ash midweek, still in the top ten at the Rough Trade In store, and and there's Pat Carr, who's managing them now, and she's part of the, she's she was part of the Mushroom setup. Calder Marshall suddenly appears in the crowd. He he did the deal with me. He ran he ran yeah. Mushroom Records, and it's. You know, I mean, it's 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 the whole Ash thing's been slightly bothersome in the sense I've actually screwed over one of my best friends because they're about to sign to Elko Pop Records, and I kind of you know I didn't I wasn't really that aware of that happening at the time, but Pat did say on one Zoom call, "You had me at fierce. We're part of your part of the Ash family," and again, not purely because they were on Fierce Panda in 1994, but because they played one of our shows. At the Dublin Castle with placebo. I did an enemy front cover with him in Iceland. Uh, we were label mates at Mushroom. There's so many different interconnections. So in a way, yeah, it's gone. It's gone full circle. I did think it was kind of weird because I thought, why are you doing a deal with Fierce Panda? We absolutely arsed it up in 1990. <laughs> you couldn't wait to get rid of us. And they were saying, no, 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 that was that wasn't your fault. We know, you know, if we'd known now, what I mean, Calder always says I, we should have just doubled our offer. But you know. <laughs> you know that essence if you if you if you were going to know that they were going to sell out six nights at bloody Wembley Stadium and be like the biggest <laughs> band in the world you know it's going to change your focus isn't it yeah so you yeah. know instead of it's scrimping a, and saving it's amazing if we can talk about your book which is brilliant it's a brilliant book um it goes through the history of what we spoke about today which is really in depth in the book and it's wonderful and, and there's a lot of band names in there i've forgotten about as well which was nice yeah. i was going oh, i forgot them it's taken um, yeah some some people say it's, it takes it's taken them ages to read the book because they've either been crying or they've just been on youtube yeah going, <laughs> that's right yeah I did. About them. you know I did, even I, even even my lovely best friend nigel who used to run ugly child records is in there and he was you know, a proper proper indie shop. If if anyone walked in there asking for Michael Jackson, he'd be telling the <laughs> fuck off to Woolworths on Walthamstow High Street. And even there, there were loads of records he hadn't heard of in there because they were like, you know, indie-ish bands, but they signed to they signed to Polydor, so the yeah. reps wouldn't bother with his shop. So he was finding out new stuff and great new songs <laughs> that he wasn't aware of from nineteen eighty four. It's great, yeah. What what I love about the book is, I mean, it's shockingly honest about your suicide attempts. Yeah. Or the, is it the Great Malarkey or the Grand Malarkey? The Grand Malarkey, The yes. Grand Malarkey. Yeah, yeah. It's just, you're so honest about it in the book. The, like, So we should say that every chapter follows the story of the suicide attempt and it goes on to a part of your life in the book. Mm. And just the honesty in the book was just breathtaking. And I, I got the audio book as well. To hear you read it in your own words as well mm. just gave it some some extra weight. But w- was that a sort of idea you wanted to put in it about the suicide attempt? Because I think on it's, it's, a t- it's a double-edged book in the fact that A, it's a brilliant snapshot of musical history but also yeah. it could help somebody in the same position realize what happens next if you do these things yeah i i i because I, I didn't have a publisher involved or anything like that i just finished the johnny moped book for um for ian for damaged goods um and i think the starting point was just the psychiatrist saying can you just do some words about your you know because they're finding ways of 
trying to get me to you know rediscover myself and all that my find my find my inner ikigai i think as uh <laughs> as one person one one medic put it which was which wasn't actually a lot of it was quite inspirational but then but towards the end of the ikigai book it does get quite cosmic and hippie like and i'm i'm not for that and then i just kind of wrote i did a bit about my dad and then and then it just kind of carried from there and i and i kept a diary of my time in hospital just because i wasn't quite sure if i was dead or not because you got very very surreal and there were just so many weird little moments like you know there's the there's the, there's the whole thing that no one knows who i am you know there were about 13 i had 13 visitors and the rest of the music industry i would to the rest of the music industry, i was just a little bit ill no one knew that the full story and you know and he could, one night i could hear the sound of fix you by coldplay coming from like you know hospital radio down the end of a darkened corridor and then the following morning i did them the, when the experts when the medical experts said oh, just to let you know i was a, i was a massive fan of death cab for cutie your, <laughs> your transatlanticism we got me got me right through med school in edinburgh and it was like oh nuts <laughs> even there sitting in my gym jams with a drip you know it's still 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 getting you know the 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 the, the, the indie fan kids there which is um so I mean, so that was lovely, and I thought, you know, if I hadn't had moments like that, I, you know, I, I don't think I'd have gone for it. You have to, you have to see the madness in these things, you know, the the the, the ambulance crew member telling me about, you know, going to going to all the um, club foot gigs, and and going to see, you know, going to see all the the meteors and all that, and King Kurt and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, my wife's got a, a way of responding to that, which is basically sighing and rolling her eyes. You know, <laughs> after years and years and years of you know, whether at gigs or supermarkets, holiday holiday resorts, you know, hi Simon, I've got a demo for you. You know, so <laughs> so yeah, so so I thought I can see the funny side, and it had to be like that. And I did have a, a friend of mine who is a nurse. She said, "Well, you, you're going to put it all in there." And I said, yeah, well, there's no, no point in doing it otherwise. There's no point in saying, oh, and then there was an incident I can't really talk about. I just thought, let's just, yeah. let's, all, all, all we can do at this point is just be honest. Mm. And then, um, and then yeah, I, got, I was halfway through and then I managed to find a publisher by accident. Mickey, it was, Mickey from Lush was already signed and it was basically a brand new music, music book publishing company. And I'd send them a pre and then I read small print. They said, "If you haven't got a book agent, don't bother sending us a crazy." And I thought well, that's a waste of a good email. And then, um, <laughs> but and then he it dropped me a line a week later saying, "Sorry, it's taking me so long. I've been in, uh, been on holiday, and um, you know, love Fierce Panda." And so the idea was it was just going to be a book about the history of Fierce Panda Records. Mm. And then I took him for a drink, and I said, "Look, there's this thing here," and I gave him an envelope, and in the envelope was printed out. I just printed out the diaries from the hospital, mm. and I said, "Take this away with you." Uh, this might just send you running away screaming thinking I'm a nutter but just it's you know it's up to you um, and he, he came back and he said this is I thought doing a book about Fierce Panda I'd have done it anyway but this just changes everything mm. it changes the whole narrative is as you, as you said you know that the kind of the words the words that people say sort of you know I'm not I'm not a brave person at all I'm a, I'm a little piglet I'm a little you know fantasy little cartoon bear bravery is not the word that i'd ever consider my consider myself to be but he said the same thing this is this is just astonishing to be there and i think I'd probably everything was fine and then the other thing he wanted to do he wanted to do all the diaries in the block right they would do the diaries first and then we'll do the rest of the panda story and i said that's not going to work i think that's just too heavy and it's too self-indulgent 
and this and then and he was still he's still fighting and then i had to sort of basically you know i, I think i'd written about half the book by this point and i said this is the way it's going to work we're going to have these tiny little bits here and then we'll have these bigger chunks here and then he finally got it but it took him a while and then he, now it says it's, the construct is absolutely brilliant and the weirdest thing is that that the hospital bits are kind of they're the easiest thing to write because they are just literally notes from a a, a, blo- a bloke sitting in hospital bed whereas then you go into and then and here's Coldplay you know then that's a lot more the style of the NME yeah and especially with the audio book the the the, the hardest bits to talk about are the easiest bits to talk about because they're, <laughs> they're written in such a you know and then I did this and then <laughs> I did that you know so they're really they're the easiest thing so there was a real paradox yeah. but yeah and then and then about a week before the book came out I suddenly had a real panic attack about it, thinking what have I done here but I just got embraced by everyone. A, I had so many people just telling me their stories about, you know, I had no idea that they, you know, the things they tried to do to themselves. Jim Benner, who was part of the XFM film, he took me along to a Music Minds Matter Health Awareness Day at Abbey Road, where you had panelists talking about, you know, the general view of mental health in the music industry, i.e. 10 years ago, major labels, the major label view was, but we're all crazy because we're in the music industry and it's kind of yeah up to a point but then there's another level of you know care and an awareness that's needed nowadays and crucially i found i wasn't on my own in literary terms i mean mickey's book is is grueling ian winwood's book is essentially the kerrang version of mine he even ends up in the same hospital bed having done the same thing <laughs> wow. to his uh, to his body Ted Kessler's book about you know how he destroyed the music press you know there's a whole you know uh, Nadine Shah's got a book's coming out James McMahon's got one coming out all all filtering through the sort of same the same sort of subject really so yeah it was kind of I found that really really comforting and now and and again sorry but back to the other thing is you know three years ago the whole idea of me doing Q&A's with Ash or doing you know Q&A's with Rock and Roll Book Club I said you can absolutely piss off that's not what I do I used to get stage fright just putting up the backdrop at Club <laughs> Fandango in an empty venue you know just the fear just the thought you know you know I'd have panic dreams about going to a gig with my bass guitar you know I'm going to play a show and all that and I'm thinking I can't play I, can't. <laughs> I never I never had those you know those stupendous rock and roll dreams where I am Freddie Mercury you know <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm just kind of you know I'm 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 Teddy Teddy Neptune and it's all gone terribly wrong it's been you know so it's like that so it's been but I think there's there's there, it's for the greater cause you know I think there's a really important story in there whether it's you know you've got mental health issues I think it helps and whether you're and you're in a band working out where your career went wrong or how maybe your career can go right that's another box ticked. And if you're in a band and you've got mental, mental health awareness issues, then that's all bases covered as, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. You know, I think it should be, you know, it should be, should be on all music courses. If you're on BIM or anything like that, just, just read this. hundred percent as well. And what's lovely about the book, which most people at the time, like yourself, it seemed to realize is that, you know, all your friends around you absolutely love you. And yeah. then when you sort of, you locked yourself away, basically they, they went to find you. Yeah. And it, it's just, you don't realise how much people really care about you until these things happen as well. It's just Yeah, amazing. absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, it was, hey, yeah, well, the weird thing was, I kind of, my logic was, if I do this, then we'll get 
Coldplay. So we've been trying to get Coldplay to a benefit gig for Fierce Panda for about ten years, <laughs> and um, and it's just never. Oh, we're in. Oh, he's, we're in Argentina or something like that. And I thought if I do this, then they'll definitely do. A, they'll do a massive gig at Brixton Academy, mm. and all the proceeds will go to my family, and they'll be looked after, and it will resurrect Fierce Panda. And it was so there was you know a, a weird way of looking at it, but it wasn't. I didn't by doing what I did. I didn't mean to kill Fierce Panda. I wanted to. Or, or ruin my family. I thought this is this is the best way of helping everyone out. I mean, bizarre logic, but there was logic to it at the, at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a <laughs> so, tremendous, tremendous suicide note as well. I'm keeping that one in the vaults for <laughs> you know one day. Sell it for forty quid at auction somewhere. I'll have it. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I give you thirty. Yeah, so, yeah, uh... Fair enough. Call, call it twenty then. <laughs> So, what's next for yourself? Are you going to write a new book? Are you still working? With yeah, do you know? Do you know what? I did, it did occur to me the other day. So, I'm, I've got to write. I'm writing a book about crisps for <laughs> um, for Ian from Damaged Goods because I've got fed up with writing about myself and talking about myself. So, I'm going to do a book on crisps. So, that's that's doing really well. That's going going along nicely. And yeah, it did occur to me the other day to think about. You know, I mean, the, the joke's already there now. When I was because uh, the Ash album's been sort of top five all week. You know, we're literally, literally last day of sales today. So I was pumping out, you know, newsletters earlier on and just encouraging to say, yeah, you can't put your arm around a download, but you can buy one and help us fend off fucking <laughs> Taylor Swift and uh, three bloody albums lurking over our shoulder. And it, it, I was saying last night, you know, this is already, this is, this, this book's already history, you know, this how not to run a record company. Mm. And it's kind of shit. We're, we're about to have a hit record after 29 years. And uh, so, you know, three, three, you know, this time three years ago, I was in the depths of despair thinking, what's the fucking point? And here we are now. And everyone's absolutely stunned. We've got, we did a deal in, it was only in Mar- March the 29th was when we did the deal with So Recordings. Mm. And that's the home of, um, they just had number one with Enchikari and Placebo and bands like that. And I'd literally, on the way to sign the deal, I literally had a meeting with Pat Carr. And, and she said, what are you up to now? I said, I'm about to sign a deal with So. And she said, well, we've got an Ash album. And from that, you know, that was five and a half months ago, we've gone from that. And the album wasn't even finished. They didn't know they never titled, didn't have artwork, nothing. And we've gone from that to hopefully it's going to stay in the top 10 today. That That's when you that's when you think, oh, thank, thank Christ. Thank Christ, you know, I failed. You <laughs> yeah. know, sometimes yeah. it's good to fail at things. You know. <laughs> Unless, of course, I did die and this is all just mad, some mad you know, post, post-death fever dream i'm still not quite sure but yeah but, but exceptionally good times yeah i think that should be the title for the second book sometimes it's good to fail I think that's yeah great. absolutely yeah yeah i think i think that's a good look it's an amazing book and i'll put a link in the description so people can buy it because if it's like we're saying if you're a musician it's fantastic if you're having issues read it because it's fantastic as yeah. well simon thanks for your time today it's been brilliant i really enjoyed chatting thank you, thank you very much chatting tracks let's talk music Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.